Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. If all goes as planned, President Joe Biden will declare an end to the COVID-19 public health emergency in May. But that doesn't mean that the threat is over. Public health officials, elected leaders, and regular citizens are settling into the new reality of living with a lingering health threat. That reality puts an emphasis on the importance of people keeping track of their own vaccination and health maintenance schedules and paying attention to situations that can increase their risk of infections. We'll update ourselves on the evolving advice for staying healthy coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tuesday in Washington, the annual State of Indian Nations Address was delivered. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington on the address by Fawn Sharp, president of the National Congress of American Indians. Native Americans and Alaska Natives have made massive strides in Washington in recent decades. But the past year was especially fruitful. Tribal leaders secured dedicated funding for the Indian Health Services, and President Joe Biden signed a reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act that enables tribes to prosecute non-natives who abuse women in Indian country. President Sharp says there's a lot to be proud of. Today, the state of Indian nations is strong because our ancestors work hard to make it so. Native leaders also secured long overdue investments in high-speed internet, climate change, and clean water resources. After close to 80 years with a presence in Washington, the National Congress of American Indians is now a force in the nation's capital. Sharp says the historic number of Native leaders in Congress and in the federal government is having an impact. Still, inequities abound. There continues to be a housing crisis across Indian country. Many states continue trying to disenfranchise Native voters, and tribal sovereignty is under assault at the Supreme Court. Sharp says now is a time for tribes to unite. We need of Indian country to just show up. This is Sharp's last year as president of NCAI, but she's not sitting on the sidelines. She urged attendees to continue fighting for Indian country, especially when Congress takes up the nation's sweeping farm bill, which funds many anti-hunger programs, among other items vital to Indian country. For National Native News, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Indigenous actress Irene Bedard is helping tell a story about the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline and the new narrative feature film On Sacred Ground. KMBA's Jill Freitas has more. Producers of On Sacred Ground say it's based on true events that happened in 2016 during construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline and the opposition camps near the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. The film follows a non-Native writer and military veteran and an oil company executive. They find themselves on opposite sides. Irene Bedard, Inupiaq, Yupik, and Metis Cree plays Mary Singing Crow in the film. She says her character helps non-Native people understand Indigenous perspectives and way of life and why it is so important they were fighting for the protection of land and water against the oil pipeline. My character was that woman that brought them in and helped them to understand those cultural aspects and um, why this was a prayerful, peaceful protest and how we all are part of 
something greater than ourselves, especially as tribal peoples. Bedard has been in the film and television business since the 1990s. She says there were times she was the only Indigenous person in these spaces, but says today there's more Indigenous representation in the industry, pointing to television shows like Reservation Dogs and Alaska Daily. Bedard says there's still a long way to go, but she's glad to be a part of it. People, as I've been saying for decades, are hungry for our stories. It's showing, you know, now that people are understanding that and we're having those opportunities to express ourselves and and for our voices to be heard. Watch out for her in the upcoming miniseries, The Green Veil, about Indian boarding schools. On Sacred Ground was recently released in select theaters. I'm Jill Freitas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Program support by Penguin Random House, the publisher of Bad Cree by Jessica Johns, an upcoming horror novel about a young Cree woman whose dreams lead her on a perilous journey of self-discovery. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. The vast majority of the U.S. population is considered fully vaccinated against COVID-19. As we approach the three-year mark since the start of the pandemic, medical experts agree the vaccine is the best and safest way to protect against the serious and highly contagious virus. At the same time, there remain skeptics of the COVID vaccine, and the attacks, mostly fueled by social media, are undermining confidence in vaccines in general. In Idaho, a bill being considered by lawmakers would outlaw any mRNA vaccines. And one social media trend describes any death noted in the news that doesn't list a cause to the COVID vaccine. Meanwhile, public health officials ponder the future of COVID vaccines. Will we need periodic boosters throughout the year? Or can just one jab do the job, similar to current flu shots? We'll get updates from our panel of medical experts and we'll take your calls. We're at 1-800-996-2848 or just key in 1-800-99-NATIVE. A reminder, too, that you should consult your own doctor before you make any medical decisions regarding your own health. Joining us from Seattle, Washington, is Dr. Rachel Bender-Ignacio. She's an infectious diseases physician and directs the COVID Clinical Research Center at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. She's also faculty at the University of Washington. Dr. Ignacio, welcome to Native America Calling. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. And joining us from Springville, New York, is Dean Seneca. He's the CEO of Seneca Scientific Solutions Plus, and he's Seneca. Dean, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hey, thanks for having me. And speaking with us in our Albuquerque studio is Cody Basenti. 
He's a second-year medical student at the University of New Mexico, and he's Danae. Cody, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I hope you're not skipping a lecture. Yeah, hey, thank you. No, I'm not. I'm free this morning. <laughs> all right. All right. That's good to know. Good to know. Dean, let's go ahead and start with you. Uh, President Biden plans to declare an end to the COVID-19 public health emergency in May. What does this mean exactly? Is it really over? Can I throw away all my masks, hand sanitizers? I've got a box of testing kits in my kitchen cabinet still. Is it all gone? Uh, no. And especially in Indian country, it's really not all gone. Um, you know, um, there's really no level of disease that defines a pandemic or an emergency, right? Um, it's really up to us, you know, uh, regarding COVID-19 and its threat. And it's really a collective decision, you know, um, psychological, in our case, uh, cultural, it's political, you know. And we as a society have to determine just how much risk and suffering are we willing to take, I mean, that's really what defines what, you know, the an end of a pandemic. And if you went and actually, if you went back, uh, I was reading some interesting uh, literature. If you went back to the 1918 uh, pandemic, you know, they said the pandemic en ended because of a loss of interest, you know, uh, in mm -hmm. the pandemic itself, you know, because the virus has really uh, ran its way and its course through the population. So. No, uh, it, it, it isn't over in Indian country. I, I will say that, um, you know, we, we uh, according to the CDC, and I was just looking at this, you know, we have the lowest vaccination rate by racial ethnic group. We have, you know, just about midway uh, regarding our booster shots. We still have a very high case rate uh, in Indian country. And and our deaths are still uh, very high as as far as the uh, uh, you know the end of January. Um, so you know I mean in Indian country this pandemic is is far from over. Um, for the rest of the United States, you know I think there's a lot of factors that are weighing into ending the pandemic, and that one being primarily the economic factor. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot there's a lot to be said. But, you know, regardless, uh, you know, who says the pandemic's over, um, you know, we're, we will continue to see um, hospitalizations. We'll continue to see deaths. We'll continue to see hospitaliza um, hospitalizations rise. Um, and, you know, people are, are elderly will you know, um, will be most uh, impacted related to COVID-19. Okay. Um, well, I, I do want to just follow up a little bit because you mentioned uh, the economic factors at play. And I mean, this decision here, this declaration that's coming in May, is it based on science? Are, are you confident or is it perhaps more political in, in the economic factors you mentioned? Um, well, I'm really concerned for Indian country. Um, but here's the thing, if we were to go back to this, you know, like I said right now, um, this whole concept, if the pandemic is over or if it's not over, there's a real tug of war going on among scientists and public health professionals, right? There's a real big push toward normalcy, and some are pushing back towards urgency, right? Um, and there is a saying, you know, among all of us epidemiologists, if it's always an emergency, then nothing's an emergency, right? So, you know, we're trying to weigh these factors. 
And I think the two biggest factors were how we uh, fan, uh, how we ended up fan, uh, doing during the winter, right? To be honest with you, did our uh, immunity hold up against uh, uh, changing uh, COVID nineteen virus? And to be honest with you, I mean, we did really good in the winter. I was very surprised, even though we had forty eight thousand hospitalizations, um, we did very well because we didn't see a peak. In all of those viruses, you know, we had influenza, we had the RSV, and we had COVID-19. So, you know, the winter, we did really well, you know, even though we did have 48,000 hospitalizations. And then the other factor was, could our health system really handle the stress of all of these uh, viruses, given the other two normal respiratory viruses that we always uh, see? And... Um, you know, I mean, our healthcare workers were burned out, um, uh, and then our hospitals are unstaffed related to this and, uh, emergency, emergency rooms are overcrowded at times. Um, but you know, what we did see that was positive was that our hospitals weren't overwhelmed with adults and we did see our immunity wall. Uh, increase. Um, and uh, I like to say that um, our, our immunity is increasing in the population, again, because we didn't see a peak in all three of these viruses all at the same time. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, you know, for the rest of the United States, you know, I don't see that we're in a total emergency phase of COVID-19. Um mm-hmm. But um, with Indian country, I would say we still are in a uh, an emergency uh, situation when it comes to COVID-19 and our indigenous populations throughout the country. Um, still and, an emergency. Uh, okay. I would, I, you know, I mean, the U.S. Okay. overall, maybe not so much so for, in, for Indian country. I would say so because, like I just said, um, you know, our, our rates are – our vaccination rates are low – the lowest among all racial ethnic groups. Our death rates are considerably high and our case rates are still the highest. So, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, you know, how do, how do we balance this? You know Um, I mean, I definitely think there's definitely a a huge concern for our indigenous populations given these factors. And on top of that, we have the highest pre-existing conditions. We have the highest diabetes rates by racial ethnic group in the country. You know, that's a major concern. Our cardiovascular and heart disease rates are significantly higher, you know. Um, And, you know, our environments, uh, you know, we have a huge amount of overcrowding in our houses and housing. And, you know, we have a lot of places that don't have running water still. So, you know, these factors are a major concern that, yeah, I I think uh, our uh, American Indian and Alaska Native communities need to be concerned. Well, Dean, going back to, to my initial question, then, based on, on all of this data that, that you're sharing today, uh, still uh, an emergency situation in many parts of the country. I mean, what's the stat? The masks, the hand sanitizer, you know, the social distancing. Uh, where do we need to be in, in regard to all of those measures that we adopted during the pandemic in order to keep our community safe? Well, if your rates are going up local, locally, um, it, it's time to put the mask on. And the mask not only protects against COVID-19, but it protects against all the other respiratory viruses. 
right? So that's always good practice, but it's always good to monitor what are the local rates uh, regarding influenza, RSV, and COVID-19 in your area. And if those rates are higher in your in your county, yes, go to masking. I would recommend our elders, especially our indigenous elders, to wear masks all the time um, because they're, uh, we're finding uh, with death rates and infection rates, that are the elders are most uh, vulnerable when it comes to uh, these respiratory viruses. So I would recommend our elders when they're out in public to wear a mask all the time. You know, so yes, masking is definitely important. Um, you know, we're 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 finding out that uh, you know now there's a lot of studies now that are being done, and these studies are being done in a controlled environment to really uh, analyze how effective masks are. And, you know, there's all these different scenarios, double masking, cloth mask, uh, the, the 95 mask. And we're finding out that uh, overall masking does work. We're speaking now with Dean Seneca. He's the CEO of Seneca Scientific Solutions. He is a public health expert, uh, very, very knowledgeable with regard to public health issues in Indian country. And we're going to have to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to ask Dean uh, in the event of a positive test or in the event that we do come down with COVID, we're going to ask him, you know, how long should we stay home? What types of social distancing restrictions should we abide by? Just some of the, the, the good information, practical information that we can all use uh, regarding COVID-19, because as he stresses, it is still very, very much a risk in our Native communities. If you've got a question about the virus, if you've got a question about vaccines, if you've got a question about what to do in the event of a positive test, what are you waiting for? We've got the experts on our show today who can answer those questions for you. The number to call 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Three Native photographers challenge Native stereotypes in a series of photo essays now at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Each of the photojournalists explores stories that they have a deep personal connection to in the Developing Stories exhibition. We'll get the view from behind the lens on the next Native America Calling. Medicare and CHIPS cover many children's dental service, including teeth cleaning, fluoride treatment, and filling. For more information about children's dental health care, contact your local Indian health provider or visit insurekidsnow.gov or call 877-543-7669. Message from Medicare and Medicaid Service. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're focusing on the latest updates about COVID-19 vaccines. Call in with your questions and comments. 1-800-996-2848. Do you find it hard to keep up with information about COVID? If so, call us. 1-800-996-2848. We've got Dean Seneca on the line. And uh, okay, Dean, so this declaration here, the presidential declaration, I mean, what kind of changes can we expect in terms of just overall policy and just our day-to-day -day lives in terms of going shopping, traveling, things like that? What's going to change? Um, well, you know, sadly, um, you know, I, I would think not much. You know, I, I feel like everybody has pretty much uh, lifted precautions 
Uh, everybody, really no one is wearing a mask anymore unless, you know, they are susceptible or don't want to get infected with anything in public places. You know, so I, I feel like there's a lot of restrictions and things that just have been lifted. I think I think this whole thing that Biden is doing is really just making it official. You know, that that's my opinion. I mean, I, you know, I go to, you know, any of the events or any public things. You know, I'm a, a professor at the University of Buffalo and at the University of Rochester. You know, uh, in my class, you know, um, some of the students will wear a mask. Um, when I'm lecturing, I don't. When I'm not lecturing, I'll try to put one on. Um, you know, but um, but anywhere else in the in the country, it's uh, you know I, I feel like uh, I feel like people aren't really adhering adhering to COVID nineteen protocols at all, uh, unless it's specific, unless it's a specific business or entity. But uh, when they lift those uh, when they lift the pandemic mandates, those businesses uh, and individual. Um, entrepreneur uh, type of uh, events, you know, I, I don't, I don't see that there'll be any restrictions. Dean, I also want to talk about the vaccines and there has been this push to paint the vaccine as something inherently dangerous uh, using little or, or no evidence. And uh, what do we need to be doing in our tribal communities, especially our tribal health leaders to, to fight some of this misinformation that's circulating? I think we just have to get the correct information out there. You know, um, I mean, I just mentioned to you, and I just looked at the CDC website before our call, you know, our population is the lowest vaccinated population out of all racial ethnic groups. And this really needs to change because because of our pre-existing uh, conditions and uh, our susceptibility to uh, viruses and illnesses, um, we should be the highest vaccinated population. And we have Indian Health Service to provide all of this for us. So um, there's no excuse on that end. The, the other thing is, you know, people that are portraying vaccinations as, you know, the ill will of um, of uh, of COVID and, and providing this mis misinformation. I mean, this is just awful. This is a tragedy, literally. You know, um, you know, they're they're intentionally um, keeping people um, unhealthy or, or trying to promote uh, an unhealthy uh, message uh, throughout the whole nation. And there, it's it, it's overwhelmingly. I mean, overwhelmingly, the science says it all that vaccinations significantly help reduce transmission, uh, infection, helps reduce hospitalizations, and keeps you alive. I mean, and here's the thing. I mean, in the trials of these vaccines, we by far have had more than enough time um, in, in the study of the vaccines that are out now to know that there's no adverse health effects. I mean, overall, I mean, we have had some um, adverse health effects. You know, there's some blood clotting with uh, the Moderna vaccine, and there were some issues regarding um, some health issues regarding older adults and taking the vaccines. Yes, we've had some of those uh, minor things. But you have to realize that this is by far the most monitored uh, vaccine uh, in the history of man, right? I mean, if there's an adverse effect, the whole world knows, Okay, so I mean, overall, the vaccine has been extremely effective, and there's no reason for people not to get it. All righty, 
Dean, uh, thank you for all those insights. As always, uh, wonderful to have you in the discussion. And let's uh, bring in Rachel now, Dr. Rachel Bender-Ignacio. And uh, Rachel, we heard Dean talking uh, about the importance of getting vaccinated. And at this point, how many vaccines and boosters are there? Because I, I lost track a long time ago. Um, yeah, thanks so much. I, I agree. It has been a little bit challenging to follow because um, the, the guidelines were changing quickly. I think we've reached a little bit of a, a period of stability in the recommendations, and so I think it's a lot easier to talk about. So first of all, as Dean mentioned, um, most Americans, but not all, have had some degree of vaccination, their primary vaccine series. That is much, much higher among elders, people 65 and up, but we still don't have, um, you know, everybody in the United States. We're actually lagging behind a lot of other countries in people who've gotten their primary vaccines. So everybody should get a primary vaccine series. Um, the two most common ones in the, in the U.S. Um, are Pfizer or Moderna. Those are both, both mRNA vaccines, um, and that's a two-dose series. Um, and then there is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and that is the one that Dean mentioned um, was associated with a lowish risk of, uh, of blood clots. Um, and that is a has now been changed uh, to a recommendation of a one dose with a, with a one booster. It is actually less protective, um, but for those who are maybe uncomfortable with getting an mRNA vaccine, um, want a little bit more of a traditionally designed vaccine, that vaccine is there. So everybody should get their first um, their first round. And then right now, um, as of September, um, the recommendation is for everybody to get a bivalent vaccine booster, which means it has the ancestral strain, the original strain that's in that um, original series. And then it also has um, uh, a BA4 or BA5, so Omicron-specific um, strain in it. So it's got two strains. It's kind of similar to what we do with the flu vaccines every year. Every year, the flu vaccines now contain four different um, strains of influenza, and um, that gets updated every year. So what will this end up looking long term? Um, you know, it hasn't been entirely laid out yet. This will be decided by the FDA and um, the ACIP, which is a, a body that helps make uh, vaccine guidance for the United States. But my suspicion is that this is going to look a lot like the annual flu vaccine, um, where there will be updated strains in it, and um, and we'll get one before respiratory virus season, so before this winter, before the winter season. I think it's really important. I've been hearing a lot of people saying, "Well, we don't know. We didn't have big trials for these bivalent vaccines." It's really important to know that for many, many years, for the last several decades the annual fall flu vaccine, it doesn't go through a trial every year. What happens is that based off of data from actually from the Southern Hemisphere where it's their winter when it's our summer, um, they predict what strains are most likely to be circulating in North America and in Europe, and they put those strains into the vaccine. It's made the same way every year. It's just like a new template. It's a new, it's a new pattern. It's like having the same thing, but just a new pattern goes into it, and it's their best match. If we actually did a new clinical trial to test each one, we would be so far behind it wouldn't matter anymore. So mm -hmm. I think we should think about the fact that, as Dean said, hundreds and thousands of people <laughs> uh, or thousands of people were in all these studies, and now... Um, millions and billions of people, actually billions of people have gotten COVID vaccines. And so that is the most monitored and extremely safe vaccines. And so we should think about that that's the technology and that's the sort of platform, that's the template. And within that, they put a new design in or like a new a new sequence. Um, and I, and that's my, my, my suspicion is that each fall, um, we will get those new sequences 
and we should be getting them again totally echoing everything that Dean said. He's spot on. Um, it's our elders that we're most worried about in terms of risk of hospitalization and death. And I would also mention people who have immuno, immune compromising conditions. So people with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, cancer, long li- you know, HIV, a long list of conditions. And those people should certainly get those boosters when they're available for their own health. But also okay. because these vaccines do you know, reduce transmission, I think everybody should be getting these to protect our family, to protect our schools, to protect our communities as well. Well, I was going to say, yeah, somebody young and healthy, should they still be getting boosted every year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can I tell a personal story? <laughs> my absolutely. Kids, my kid, my, one of my daughters has COVID right now. One of my other daughters is just COVID recovered. And um, you know, my husband and I have been safe. We've all gotten the booster, but one of my daughters only tested positive for um, like two or three days and didn't get very sick. And the other one is testing positive, but is not sick at all. And I, I think, you know, you can't say actual causality with each individual one, but I, my guess is that that would look a lot different for our household right now had we not all had our boosters. So, okay. you know, for younger people, Again, I think this has gotten twisted around a lot in the media. I'm not as worried about younger and healthy people, their individual risk of getting extremely ill. What I am worried about is people's risk of getting long COVID is still there. It's maybe 4 to 8% of infections with Omicron. You say, oh, that's not a high percent. But when there's millions of infections happening, you know, it's like, it's like the tip of, it's the, it's the part of the iceberg that you don't see, right? It's the, it's the part under the water. It's, if we have millions and millions and millions, 4% of millions and millions of infections is a lot of people who this is really impacting. So right. to me, it's no, it's no longer about how many people are being hospitalized and how many people are dying. Those are statistics we see in the news, and the news likes to pick those up. The real question is, is your colleague, your cousin, your sister, your somebody in your household going to be out of work for three weeks or, or not feel like they can you know, um, exercise for six months? or they have brain fog, or they have to care for family members, or they have to care for elders. And we have to think about that impact. And so to me, the vaccines are, it's about the ripple effect within your household and within your whole community. And every person who gets vaccinated, right, every person who gets vaccinated is helping prevent that ripple effect of, even if they do get infected, of, you know, making it less impactful for them and and for everybody around them. Alrighty, Rachel, and you mentioned your daughter uh, right now sick with COVID. And earlier, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, what are what's the latest in terms of if you come down with, with COVID, how long should you quarantine, or should you quarantine at all? What types of measures should we be paying attention to if we get sick with COVID right now? Here it is, already late February, twenty twenty three. Yeah, so I'd say you know, kind of again, echoing the things that Dean said. Ending, and I want to make a little bit of a clarification, a little bit of a tweak. The public, Biden is supposed to announce, President Biden is supposed to announce the ending of the public health emergency, right? So that doesn't change how many cases are circulating or the importance of the, the virus. That just means the public health emergency and the funding and political action associated with it being an emergency, right? So what that means is that we need to be a little bit better prepared and educated and, 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 and armed with what we need to do when, you know, when it does impact us. So what that means is for people who are higher risk, all of the things that, that Dean mentioned, uh, people who um, have, card- you know, high, high blood pressure, heart problems, cancer, elders, um, you know, people with HIV, people with any sort of 
issue lung problems, people who smoke, people who have asthma, anybody who might be impacted more seriously by the infection should have a doctor or have somewhere where they get health care and have that in their head so they're not panicking if they get COVID. And they should know where to get Paxlovid, which is right now the only really effective antiviral. And it's really important and it is really a life-saving medication for people who are at risk of getting very sick. And there's a lot of information about, you know, should you take it, should you not? For people who, those groups that we mentioned that are at higher risk of getting really sick, and especially elders, and even people who are vaccinated that are at those higher risks should know who they could call, what pharmacy might have it, is there a doctor or a pharmacist who could prescribe it, and where they should go. And it also means that we need to be a little bit more independent on stocking up on tests, rapid tests, knowing where to go get testing. With the ending of the um, kind of the emergency scenario, there are a lot fewer kind of those kiosk places to go get tested or big tents offering vaccination. So it just means it's a, it's kind of a, a little bit more do-it-yourself. So people okay. should think about those things. And I want to echo that because it- – I, I the the store that I shop at the, the the grocery store during you know up until about three well up until like this fall they had that kiosk it was just full of COVID tests you know they just had boxes and boxes and now you've got to look for them they're like part you know in like the pharmaceutical section they, they might have two or three boxes on the shelf I mean it's really limited the supply so where can people go if uh, they can't find them locally in stores. Yeah, so there are places, um, at least as of now, uh, the federal government is still shipping them uh, via the Postal Service to people's houses. Um, It's four tests per household per month, so that's not a lot. If you end up having somebody in your house with COVID, you'll go through that really quickly, and especially, you know, multiple people living in the house. So I think because of that, I, I recommend, you know, sometimes the shelves are empty if a lot of people in town have COVID, to stock up when you see them, get them. Check out your insurance plan if you have insurance or if not, there are places that are offering them for free without insurance and stack them up and have them at home Um, because that way, you know, if you develop symptoms or you think you're exposed, you have them right there again, then you don't have to panic. And I think it's really important that again, that, you know, what we're doing in my family right now is that, um, you know, my kids are sleeping, they sleep separately from us and they are in their, their own space. And when I enter their room to interact with them, I put on the very best ma- mask that I have available to me, which is a, um, a respirator type mask, um, a KN95 um, or an N95 if people have them. Um, and, um, and, you know, and trying to keep them outside when the weather's okay. Right. And we're not, the kids aren't going to school. They're not playing with friends. We're waiting until they test negative um, to be able to go out and do those things. So I think, you know, we can really keep other people safe by keeping them at home right now. Good information. Rachel, we are going to have to take a break here in a couple of minutes. But uh, if you could briefly give us an update on, on on the long COVID issue, because I know that had a lot of people really worried these issues, you know, these longstanding respiratory issues and other things related to COVID. What do we know about long COVID now? Here we are three years in. Well, we know a lot about long COVID and we also have a lot that we have left to learn. Um, So things that we know, um, as I mentioned before, is that compared to people who got infected with the um, early strain, the ancestral strain, 
Um, we're seeing it less frequently, but again, even if it's only four to eight percent of people who get it, and long COVID meaning essentially any residual symptom that's more than 30 days or more than a month after the initial infection, um, that's still a lot of people, and that's still a lot of um, of time. So we know that people can get um, effects on their brain, on their mood, on their sleep, on their breathing, on their heart, on their um, uh, you know fatigue and energy levels, um, musculoskeletal. It really is wide ranging. And as of right now, we don't really have a lot of treatments. There is I'm right now at a scientific conference where people are talking about how fast science is moving to try to understand and try to study this so that we can get long COVID treatments out to the people who are still being affected by this. We're speaking with Dr. Rachel Bender, Bender Ignacio, and she is an infectious diseases physician and faculty at the University of Washington. She's up in Seattle and uh, lots of really, really good information, up-to-date, timely information regarding the COVID-19 virus, also uh, the vaccines, uh, which vaccines, how they work, and, and just a lot of good information. And Folks, uh, if you have questions or uh, if you have any concerns at all about uh, your health in regards to COVID-19, phone lines are open now, 1-800-996-2848. One more break and we'll be right back. If you or someone you know is feeling sad, hopeless, or experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, call, text, or chat 988 988 is a new three-digit dialing code for 24-7 emotional, mental, or substance misuse support. 988 connects you to free, confidential support. You are not alone in a crisis. Just call, text, or chat 988. For more information, visit 988.nm.org. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're learning the latest information on the COVID-19 vaccines today. Do you have a question about the virus or the vaccine? Are you still worried about the risk of COVID-19 or are your priorities and thoughts now focused elsewhere? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. All perspectives are welcome, so please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Let's go to the phones right now. We have Mary listening on KUNM in Taos, New Mexico. Hello, Mary. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, he said that it was highly monitored, and I don't feel like that is. I had a um, serious reaction when I got my shot, and um, I didn't have any place to report it. They didn't say, well, this is where you go if you have a reaction. And I've talked to several people with reactions, and they have never... Sometimes uh, a friend in Texas had the same reaction as my friend in New Mexico, but they had no idea. They didn't know where to go to get any of this information if this was a normal reaction. So um, I had a really serious reaction, and I'm not sure that I can do the booster again because I don't want to end up in the hospital with the reaction. And okay. But there's a lot of pressure to to get it. Because of, you know, if you go to school or if you go work, you know, then there's um, pressure to get it. But I, it should be an individual decision because everybody is an individual. And in my case, I was in a situation enclosed where I was for about a month in a nursing home 
for therapy. And there was a huge outbreak, and I didn't get it. You know, I keep up my vitamin D, my sink. I'm really careful with the mask. And I just feel like it needs to be an individual thing. And like I said, you know, my my uh, my, <laughs> my reaction was very scary. Mary, thank you for calling. And, yeah, it sounds like that was a really scary reaction. So, uh, Rachel... What's your response to that? We have Mary in Taos, New Mexico. She had a, an adverse reaction to the vaccine, and uh, now she's worried about getting a booster. And it sounds like uh, the healthcare professionals that she was dealing with did not know how to respond to that situation when she had that adverse reaction. And you know what? Mary's not the first person that I've spoken with that's had something like this uh, happen to them. So what does she need to do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I wasn't clear, Mary, and thank you for sharing your experience. Did, did you have a trusted healthcare professional that you could talk to about your reaction, about whether or not they thought it would be repeated with another shot or different ways to address your concern? You told me to have the J&J, the Johnson Johnson shot, which I did. Uh-huh. So um, I don't know about the booster. Um I, it was a very scary reaction. I felt like a blanket was squeezing me, and I was having breathing problems and depression and diarrhea and just it's very scary. But I know other people have had reactions for weeks on end or been in bed for days and, okay. you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, there I, is a reaction. And they're yeah, not so monitoring think- it. So, okay, so to be clear, so there is a website called vSafe, um, which is uh, a national vaccine monitoring platform um, that is uh, maintained, um, and anybody can write in uh, with and give as much information as you can, and they look at trends, and they look at, at, at you know, uh, particular, they look for signals of new types of reactions. I think it's really important for everybody to speak with their own healthcare providers if you've had a bad reaction about um, what type of vaccine you could get in the future and should you get a vaccine in the future. I, I, okay. I think it's very clear that people do have reactions and I think it's really important to distinguish what is, um, there are lots of adverse events that are normal and common in vaccines like fever, like fatigue, some people who have body aches and end up in bed. That is extremely common and that does not mean that the vaccine is not safe overall or it is not safe for them. Okay. Um, Ra- that, Rachel, that I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. And I do want to ask, though, I mean, because we'll, we'll often hear this comment or this statement that uh, a vaccine is highly monitored. And what exactly does that mean? So a couple of different things. So before it, it gets released um, to the public, it goes through clinical trials. So um, I, I, uh, I conduct clinical trials. Um, mainly for COVID treatments, but um, what it means is that people enter these studies. They generally, they give informed consent to participate in the study, which means all the risks and benefits are laid out to them, and they agree or don't agree to participate to make sure it's very ethical and that it's um, that it's safe for them to be doing it. And it means that they're followed very, very closely. Somebody's looking at the, their body. Somebody's taking their blood. Someone is, is monitoring it. Usually they're assigned to the vaccine or placebo, meaning like a saltwater injection. And neither the person nor the person who's conducting the study know. So that's the way to, to understand 
and find actual real signals about about this. And so this happened with thousands and thousands of people before it went into the public. And then now there's um, the CDC and this, this right. website called DeSafe that is monitoring now that now that um, billions of vaccines have been given. All right. Rachel, thank you for that follow-up there and, and your response to Mary listening up in Taos, New Mexico. Uh, I definitely want to bring our third guest into the conversation now. Cody, he's been waiting patiently, our in-studio guest. Cody, you doing okay? Yeah, still here. All right. Well, Cody, I, let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. Your medical school journey coincides the COVID-19 pandemic. So give us your perspective. How has it impacted uh, your thoughts and, and just your whole mission of, of becoming a future doctor? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, coming from Navajo Nation, I think, you know, and Indian country in general, I think, you know, at the height of the pandemic, it was very hard on everyone. Um you know, I recently um, had to visit the gravesite back in Crown Point, and it was very sad to see tens of new gravesites from um, the COVID pandemic at the height of it about a couple years ago. Um, and it was a really kind of stark and dark reminder of why I am in medical school and why, you know, as hard as medical school can be, why, you know, I feel the need um, to push through because um, there's a long history with, you know, our people, whether that be distrust of, you know, Western medicine or um, just unsure of, you know, past um, relationships with medical professionals um, and, all, and all the individual um, relationships and, you know, whether that be um, tribe specific. Because um, I think an important thing throughout this whole discussion is, you know, each tribe's specific sovereignty and their own ways in um, addressing the COVID-19 pandemic and however they want to address it. Um, but for me personally, it's been um, a journey that's, thankfully, I, you know, when I started medical school, um, I, it was kind of, I was back in 2021. The, you know, we were kind of unsure about where COVID was going. It was about two years in now. Um, so I started medical school with, you know, being masked up, but was in person, whereas the, the class above me did their entire first year um, in med of medical school um, online. And so I guess the effects of, you know, those students and even now, um, it's kind of the balance of, you know, we are moving towards telemedicine, right, where we're going to have to, you know, be adaptable to provide care to patients over the phone or over Zoom. Um, but also the importance of seeing patients in person and, you know, really tuning into that human aspect of the clinical setting and being there with patients in person, um, whether that be holding their hand or, you know, just that humanly aspect. Um, but also we understand that providing, you know, rural care or care that isn't quite so, or care that is more convenient to people, that people can, you know, do things from their homes and not have to travel three hours um, to the nearest clinic um, is also very important. So I think, you know, we're in this stage and I'm in this stage of my clinical training where we're trying to be very adaptable and trying to manage both sides and understand the importance of being so adaptable through our training. Now, you are a second-year medical student uh, at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. It sounds like uh, COVID-19 and the vaccine, all that stuff is really implemented there in your studies as a medical student. 
Yeah, no, that's right. Um, as part of the University of New Mexico, you had to be vaccinated. Um, and we were masked up for all of my first year. I think last last summer, I think, you know, they kind of, they didn't make it mandatory, but a good number of um, us students still wear masks. And masks, of course, are still recommended um, in in the clinic setting. Um, but yeah, learning about it has been very interesting. Um, we, we had a, I'm currently in my infectious disease block right now. Um, and there's still a lot to be learned about COVID. Um, and we're, we're going to be the first class who's going to be tested on COVID-19. Um, so, which is kind of very interesting, right? Whereas medical professionals previously didn't have to learn about COVID-19, but we will see this in our boards and, um, continuing to see them in our boards in the future as well. Cody, are, are you worried that another pandemic could be on the horizon? Mm. Um, you know, I think life does seem very unpredictable right now. And as a medical student, it's very easy to get lost into the books and, you know, focus on the task at hand and focus on the next quiz that we have on Monday. Um, so, you know, I think the this pandemic that, you know, that we are still in and have and still see a lot of cases of and everything, it is a very scary. It was it is and was a very scary um, realization, you know, how how bad this can be. And so I think, sure, I am definitely scared that something else could happen, whether it be a different virus or something else. And as a future health professional, um, I think we, I would like to believe that we're going to be better prepared, but, um, you know, as, as bad as COVID was and still is, um, I am, I guess I am worried as a future health professional that there is going to be a worse virus out there and worse things could happen. And, you know, I hope that we take everything that we have learned from COVID and really put an emphasis on mitigating, you know, another pandemic and, you know, we'll have a, ro a more robust response and not be so blindsided. Earlier, we were talking about the vaccine and still folks that are hesitant or, or don't want to take it for whatever reason. What's your response to people who uh, don't want to take that vaccine? Yeah, good question. Um, we are actually being trained right this on, you know, how we talk about with patients who are vaccine hesitant. Um, you know, I actually recently was just had a standardized patient and the case was, mom comes in with um, their daughter and they're hesitant about giving them the MMR vaccine um, because they had a, um, a nephew who um, had a very adverse reaction to it um, and thought to, it was believed to um, have a connection to autism, right? A very classic um, connection with vaccines, which is completely um, false and supported by a lot of um, literature out there that there is no connection. Um, so, right. So I'm currently going through that and trying to work through patients and, you know, it really stems from trying to just create a relationship and meeting patients with where they're at first. Right. You know, I could have jumped into that encounter and being like, no, you must give your daughter this vaccine right now. And of course, as medical professionals, you know, we support vaccinations and getting people vaccinated. Um, but sometimes you can create barriers and patients will put their walls up when you, you know, immediately attack this, this component to, you know, a, an interesting component to how they view their own health. 
and their especially their family's health as well um so you know coming through as i'm here to listen first and understand where you're coming from and build a relationship and come to understand what your values are in your own health and in your family's health first and then using that and building on that and whether it be in the next two encounters eventually you know earning that trust of your patients and getting to the point where you know what you're right doc um i you have we've built this great relationship um there's a lot of evidence to support why vaccines work and um i think we'll go ahead and go through it so um completely support every individual patient's autonomy and what they want to do with their bodies but of course um it's also important to um look out for each other and take care of your community and i think we can do that by vaccinating ourselves now cody you've got about two years uh left in medical school any thoughts in terms of what type of medicine or specialty uh, that you would like to to provide when you become a doctor? Yeah, that's a, that's the big question right now. <laughs> um, well, I've always been primary care. Um, of course, there's a big need for you know native doctors in every every aspect of um, medicine right now. Um, and so I have I have big dreams and goals to go home and um, be. A physician um, back home, either in Crown Point and Shiprock. Um, so, because of that, I had always been family medicine, but recently, I have come to discover new things. And you know, I was just a raised kid, and I didn't really know exactly, you know, the whole ins and outs of the medical system, and that there were so many um, specialties and things like that. So, it's been interesting to learn. So, I'm also keeping my 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 heart open to different specialties but i imagine if i had to bet on myself right now that i'd end up in primary care primary care wow well cody it's uh really inspiring i always enjoy when we have uh student perspectives on our show and, and your story in particular really inspires me and uh, i just want to wish you all the success in the world uh going forward uh wonderful to have you add to this very timely conversation that we had on our show today. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. So I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Rachel Bender-Ignacio, Dean Seneca, and Cody Vicente for the latest insights and updates regarding COVID-19. Hope you'll join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow for a conversation with Native photographers from the Developing Stories exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Until then, stay safe. I'm Sean Spruce. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.